Mr. George with his arms uh, out there folks we're, we're pulling for you praying for you and we hope you get right on your feet soon Morning, Jared. Jared. This, this is, is Dale. Dale. We're just hoping and praying that you get well soon, and we definitely miss you and Andrea. So please hurry up. That's from the Donovan family. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Jared. I'm ready for the party. So come home soon. to do the affected repairs now it's up to you to heal and we will hold you in our prayers daily till we see your your big smiling face again praise god brother rachel if you can mute the mic now uh we'll entertain any other prayer requests from the, the families
you would lead us in our, our opening prayer this morning. Would you stand with us as we pray? Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from a responsive reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 84. That'll be 814 in your Trinity hymnal. Psalm 84, page 814 in the Trinity. Let's begin. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. You have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointing. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk his blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Father in heaven, may you add your blessing to this reading, that it may touch the hearts of the lost, but strengthen 
as well and give confidence to the hearts who are within your grasp. In the name of Christ. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we, we will turn with me to 455 in the Trinity. Just a slight announcement this morning. Uh, before Dad went into uh, his surgery, he set up uh, recordings of the music that we're going to be singing for the next couple of weeks. So the music is going to be coming from the sound system, just so we're not all surprised, okay? <laughs> Yes. Um, and for the next song, there is a slight uh, situation, but I'll talk about that when we get there. All righty, everybody. There's also an intro, just so you guys know. Sorry, I'm talking too much, but all righty.
anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? Hopefully something I can plunk out on the piano. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Amazing Grace. I've got that one. <laughs> Two oh two in the brown. <coughs> Pastor George, was that one just for me, or did you do you like do you have a reason? <laughs> it's a very it's good for me, so <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, thank you. Thank you. 
Dankeschön. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, and that'll be verses 5 through 14. You'll find that on page 1677 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. John chapter 15, verse, starting at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me... And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you, you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know the master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. You all will turn with me again to 382 in the hymnal, 382. Again, we are limited on what uh, we're able to do with the recordings that we were left. So for this uh, song, we only have three verses in the recorded music. So if you all wouldn't mind skipping the second verse and going to the third after our first verse. Thank you.
Our scripture text this morning is John 15. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at the positive incentives which Christ gives in our text for remaining in him. There is the negative incentive, the promise of judgment or hell if we do not remain in him. But the first positive incentive was the promise of answered prayer. Two conditions. Number one, the one praying has to remain in Christ. Verse 7. There could be no sporadic fit of attachment to Jesus, but rather a consistent, ongoing, constant perseverance with Christ through thick and thin. Secondly, his words must remain in us. We can't pray for things contrary to his teachings and expect a positive answer. I wish the world would know that. That's one of the very basics of prayer. They ask God for the weirdest things, for sinful things. And they expect God to hear those prayers. Secondly, this is a glorious incentive to remain in Christ. Number one, because it brings Christ near. He's only a prayer away. And secondly, because it unleashes the power of God in our lives. God the Father answers our prayers for the sake of his Son. For the sake of his Son. Whose brothers and sisters we are. So therein is the connection. Now today we want to move on in the text to consider other positive incentives which Christ gives to his disciples to encourage them to remain in him as we come let's pray thank you lord for the privilege of looking into your word thank you for preserving it for us thank you for giving us the holy spirit to help us understand it we pray lord that as we teach the word of god that we're faithful to it because it's your word not ours we don't need any spin on it we just need to tell it like it is And let the Holy Spirit do his work. We pray that you will bless Jared. Help him to uh, recover his strength. We pray, Lord, that you will watch over him in a particular way. And bless his family at this time as well. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at the positive incentives that the Gospel of John gives us to remain in Christ. Number one, we already looked at the guarantee of answered prayer. The world does not have a guarantee. We have a guarantee. We're the brothers, they're sisters of Christ. And the Father who listens to the Son also listens to us because of the Son. The world does not have that connection. Some might argue that they have no need for an incentive. The suggestion is that if we love the Lord for the sacrifice he made of himself at Calvary, we should need no other incentive to remain in him. And it's true that some believers 
need less motivation than others. But even if it were to contemplate the sufferings of our Savior on behalf of us, then why do we still wander away from him? Every time you sin, you wander. And some have even abused the teaching. Let me read it for you. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You know how they interpret that? They interpret it this way. Oh. The more we sin, the more grace we get from God. So who in their right mind would interpret it that way? False teachers. False teachers. Nowhere in the scripture does God give us incentives to sin. That's always condemned. Always. Indeed, there are many who completely abandon Christ in time, who have a clear knowledge of his sacrifice on the cross. The reason is they knew about his cross work, but they didn't truly know him. The Lord knows well the fickleness of our sinful hearts, our forgetfulness, our tendency to coldness by being absorbed by the world's allurements, And so he provides daily incentives or rewards, however you want to say it, which spur us on to fidelity. First was answered prayer. And by the way, that is a high use of reward. And it demonstrates that we need not believe that rewarding someone for obedience is some kind of low-key, base, impious gimmick. No, this is Christ the Lord speaking here in our text. And he will reward the branches who remain in him, the vine. He will bless the faithful and true, not only eventually in eternity, but now, today, in tangible ways. First way he I'll answer your prayers. Now that is assuming, of course, and we studied that, that we're praying according to God's will. People of the world pray. All over the world they pray. But they pray to their deities, their idols, or even if they think they're praying to Jehovah God, they pray for sinful things. They pray to satisfy the lusts of their heart. And they expect that God is the candy man in the sky and he'll just give them whatever they ask. Not true. God is holy. He has a will for everybody. And his will is to be obeyed. And if you pray outside his will, forget it. He's not going to answer that except to say no. No. The second positive incentive is that of proven discipleship. Look at verse 8. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. 
Many there are in our day who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Just turn the TV on and you'll see that what I'm saying is true. From pastors to parishioners, from Hollywood stars to the average man on the street, from the notables who run government to those who are governed, there is a plethora of people claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. They're everywhere. Jesus here would have us know that true discipleship is proven discipleship. It is discipleship which has been examined and in the final analysis has been found to be genuine. And the proof of discipleship is not talk, but action. It is not the ability to articulate the faith, which proves genuineness, but the ability to live the faith. That's probably a shocker to a lot of people in our day. What do you mean, live the faith? Well, may any person who has professed to have believed in Christ, may they be assured that he or she is a disciple of Jesus? May he or she be confident of being saved because of a decision they made for Jesus at evangelistic meeting? And as with the incentive of answered prayer, our Lord lays down the conditions for anyone claiming to be his disciple. Look at verse 8. That you bear much fruit showing yourself to be my disciple. Oh. NASB says, bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. You can protest all you want that a mere profession of faith is all that's necessary for a person to be saved and to become a true disciple of Christ. But here in our text, we are confronted with the teachings of the Lord of the Church, and he outlines the criteria by which men and women may be judged to be his disciples, and that criteria is bear much fruit, showing, that is, thereby demonstrating yourself to be my desire. This should end forever any hope based upon mere talk alone. And it should alert us to the truth that many in our day are not disciples of Christ at all whose testimony is to the contrary. To put it succinctly, talk is cheap. Talk is easy. Talk is readily available. But fruit bearing, well, that's something altogether different. Our Lord tells us boldly, plainly, that a good confession is not by itself warrant for claiming title to heaven. Where does he say that? Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, verse 21. And how discouraging yet revealing is the text just two verses later in the same chapter. It reads, Many will say to me on that day, that's judgment day, Lord, Lord. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Observe the import here of Jesus' words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. But many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Stack them together and see what Christ is saying. Not everyone who says it is going to enter. And there's going to be many who says, Lord, Lord. I think it's startling. It's absolutely earth-shaking. It is soul-searching. Not all who profess Christ to be the Lord of their life will enter the kingdom of heaven. And many there are who will fall into that dreadful and perilous category. How can this be? I mean... Why would Christ bar entrance to those who acknowledge him as their Lord? The answer, because the fruit of their lives does not corroborate their profession. Let me say it again. Because the fruit of their lives does not corroborate their profession. Their deeds say one thing while their mouth says another. And so God says, Jesus says, away from me, you evil what? Evil doers. Oh, there's what they're doing. We would use the expression, actions speak louder than words. The Bible puts it this way, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Proverbs 23, verse 7. That is to say, what a person truly thinks about life and living and about God and Jesus and salvation and so on will be evident in his or her behavior. We live from our true belief system. This is why a person's behavior is better barometer of a person's convictions than his words. Sadly, there are thousands, literally, thousands of people in our day who have the Christian talk down pat, but they have no life to back it up. They have sat in Sunday school long enough. They've attended enough Bible studies. They've listened to enough evangelical sermons that they are quite adept in parroting the party line, the Christian phraseology, the expressions we use. What is more, not only can they speak fluently on Bible themes, 
They can also speak accurately. Yet this in itself does not show conversion to Jesus. It may only show that such people have been good listeners. They've been good students of their teachers. And it should not surprise us one bit that they are articulate preachers even, whose message is true, whose lives are blatantly hypocritical. This is why our Lord says in our text, bear much fruit for the Father's glory, showing yourself to be my disciples. Again in Matthew 7, verse 18 and 19, Jesus speaking, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What kind of tree is cut down and thrown into the fire? The tree that has no good fruit. The fruit is the criteria for judgment, not one's words. James puts it this way. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James 1 verse 22. Boy, if there's any verse that's crystal clear, it's that. Again, Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, says Jesus, and do not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. Tilt! The red light ought to go on. Beep, beep. Your words do not correlate with your actions. If you're claiming to be a disciple because of what you know, it's not enough. It's not enough because your knowledge, while expansive and able to cover everything from justification by faith to the Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ, is defective in this. What you know hasn't changed you. It hasn't had a spiritually good effect on you. It is a truism beyond question that when the Spirit of Christ comes into a person's life, that person is irrevocably, undeniably changed from that day forward. A life begins within, which dies to the old way of thinking and talking and doing, and it comes alive to God's way of thinking and talking and doing. And this change is radical, it's real, and it's not something which can be artificially reproduced. It's of God. Supernatural. Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, maintain it as it is, 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's the idea of being crucified with Christ, who loses his life for me, he will find it. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. Or again, Jesus, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. Matthew 10, verse 25. Is this you this morning? Is this me? I mean, we profess to be disciples or students of Christ, but are we? Is your behavior more Christ-like now than the day you say you came to know Christ as Savior? What has changed, if anything? Are you more faithful in your church attendance? In your fellowship with God's people? Has your speech been cleaned up? Do you think in a more godly way about the issues of life? Do you hate sin and hate evil? Boy, we have a lot of that in our culture. Are you desirous of becoming one whose behavior is a glory to God and not an insult to God? Think of it. As a believer, you you represent the Lord of glory to the culture. It's an unbelievable, responsible position. When the world looks at us, they ought to see Jesus Christ living out in us. The way we think, the way we talk, the places we go. Talk all you will, testify what you know, profess your allegiance. Unless you're a changed person, unless you're changed from producing bad fruit to producing good fruit that glorifies God, your profession is spurious and counterfeit. Simple and dreadful as that is. There isn't a shred of evidence to warrant the assurance of you being Jesus' disciples. How utterly absurd in our day that the church is full of people who have no conscience whatsoever about their sinful behavior. They maintain their lives just as they did before the supposed conversion. They're still liars, still thieves, still backbiters, still gossips, still slanderers of the good reputation of others, still unloving, still angry, still manipulative, still everything evil they were before profession of faith in Jesus. And that just ain't going to cut it. God isn't going to be fooled by that. The only thing different is that they have added a little bit of religious knowledge to their understanding, like a student might add chemistry to his knowledge of history and mathematics. Paul warns us that the wages of sin is death. He warns us in Romans 8, verse 12 and 13, Brothers, We have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. That's not where the obligation 
For if you live according to the sinful nature, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. It is a false hope to believe that by interjecting a moment of a profession of Christ in between an unenlightened time when you were ignorant of Christ and a time now in which you know a lot about Christ, it is a conjecture to think that sin's wages are somehow canceled with regard to you. No. If you continue to be disobedient to Christ and practice the sin he came to deliver you from, you will be paid sin's wages. Either you kill it or it kills you. There's no middle ground. This is why Jesus talked about denying oneself, taking up the cross, following him. cross is an instrument of death. Your old life has to die with Christ. But his life might be all in all within you. So, the first condition of a person that has a proven discipleship is much fruit. Is it there? Is that spiritual fruit there? you have that evidence in your life? Number two, there is a second condition for someone to claim this incentive. Not only must there be much fruit in a person's life to prove he or she is a disciple of Christ, but the fruit must be the kind which enhances God, the Father's glory. Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. First condition cancels out all the mere talkers. The second condition cancels out all who are busy doing the wrong things. First condition deals with quantity, much fruit. The second deals with quality, fruit that brings glory to God. There are those in our day who mistake busyness and religious things for the spiritual fruit which pleases God. So long as they are involved in religiously titled or identifiable activities, their conclusion is that they are producing fruit as a believer which glorifies God. Their discipleship is based on doing what I call churchy things. That is, Things God's people do. If we return a moment to the text in Matthew 7, you will observe that in their defense of people who claim Jesus as Lord, they referred to their service record. Ooh, what a service record it was. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name. 
and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. This is the fruit they present to the Lord for consideration that they should be permitted to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is their credentials for claiming to be true disciples. It's their way of saying, we have not just been talkers now. We have been doers. And this is the labor we have been engaged in. And as we read their credentials, as we read their service record, puts us to shame, humanly speaking. We list such things as serving on the mission committee, or teaching a Sunday school class, or attending special spiritual conferences or programs, contributing to the church financially, working with the young people, fixing up the building, and of course, we would also list preaching in Jesus' name, helping the sick or those in need in some other area. Yet we are reminded of Jesus' response to the do-gooders in Matthew 7. Busy and religious as they were in their service, he said, (laughs) I never knew you. Away from me. You workers of iniquity, you evildoers. Say what? (laughs) What? Here we are congratulating ourselves for all that we do in Jesus' name, yet in the end there is nothing in it which commends us to God. Ah, This is most disheartening, not to mention dangerous. Why is it that religious service is not considered by God to be fruit of the type which glorifies him? We almost want to say, well, how do we please God? What does he expect of us anyway? The key to unlocking this mystery is in the answer Jesus gave to this to these people in Matthew 7. Away from me, you evildoers. And ASV says, you who practice lawlessness. The emphasis of our Lord is not upon doing things in Jesus' name to or for others, but doing things in our personal lives which evidence union with him. The idea is that we know him and he knows us, which results in righteous behavior, not evil behavior. And if we check the list of items the protesters give in Matthew 7 and add our own list of things that we consider spiritually spiritual service, which glorifies God, 
we soon discover where it is that we are placing the emphasis. We place emphasis on doing things to or for others in Jesus' name and not seeing to it that our own hearts are right before God. And our own lives evidence true remorse over sin and the repentance which goes with it. And this is why Jesus can say, in spite of the good activities done towards others by the people, in Matthew 7, away from me, you evil doers. While being absorbed with helping others and ministering to others, the people of this text haven't dealt with the you of the text. With their own relationship to God. They're strangers to him. He says, I never knew you. Matthew 7, verse 23. Brethren, there is this great danger with us as well that we become very concerned and preoccupied with ministering to others while neglecting the state of our own soul. We can tell others how to be saved, how to repent, without repenting ourselves. We can charge others in our teaching to seek the forgiveness of God for sin, while we never seek it ourselves. This was the problem Jesus had with the Pharisees, you'll remember, who were the teachers of the law of God. And he told his disciples, here's what he said. It's hard to believe, but this is what he said to him concerning the Pharisees. You must obey them and do everything they tell you. Whoa, tilt. Does that sound right to you? The Pharisees. And Jesus says, you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Jesus, are you sure you got that one right? He goes on. But, oh, there's a condition thrown in here. But, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Matthew 23, verse 3. And in verse 5, same chapter. Everything they do, they do for men to see. Wow. All of this is a denial of the first prerequisite of being a disciple. Namely, that we are to deny ourselves, deal with self, deal with our sinfulness, follow after Christ on a daily basis, And your first and foremost duty as a disciple of Christ is not evangelism, nor teaching a Bible class, nor ministering to the sick or to the homeless, not giving money to the poor. Your first duty is to learn to walk in holiness of life as a person united with Jesus Christ. That's your first duty. 
to become more like Jesus in character and less like the devil is fruit that glorifies God. This is everywhere attested to in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 and following. Paul writes, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Whoa. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Again, Ephesians 4. 17 and following. I tell you this, I insist on and in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desire, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The writer of Hebrews enjoins us, make every effort to live in peace, with all men, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Now, brethren, all of these scriptures and more that we could cite emphasize one thing, personal holiness of living. This is the fruit which glorifies God because it is God in us by his spirit who produces this fruit. Galatians 5 tells us about it. Verse 22 and following. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Observe in this list of spirit fruit that there is not one thing listed which pertains to others except in an indirect way. This fruit is what the Christian is, not just what he does on behalf of others. 
We are to be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. True, these things will govern our treatment of others, but the Apostle's point is that this fruit is something we are to be producing in our own lives because of being crucified with Christ. And it is only as this fruit characterizes our lives that the other activities, evangelism, teaching, works of benevolence, have merit of service that pleases and glorifies God and thus proves our true discipleship. This is truly an awesome incentive for remaining in Christ. To be proven as a disciple, as one persevering in holiness, gives a confidence of position in Christ that eludes the do-gooders who have never been changed by God's Spirit from their lives. This fruit that pleases God is of God and His own doing, as is clear from verse 4. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So he's saying we must abide in order to produce. Verse 8 then takes us a step beyond that. When we abide, reading, much fruit is produced, fruit that glorifies God, and that in turn confirms our claim to be Jesus' true disciples. Okay, so what do we learn in all of this? Firstly, the fruit which God approves and which glorifies him is the fruit in us of a changed character from evil to good as we abide in Christ. This is progressive. We see this in the text, verse 2. All unproductive branches, they're cut off, they're discarded. But, we read on, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And then in verse 8, we have reference to much fruit. So the progression is this. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. At no time in the life of a true branch is there no fruit. There's room for growth because there is true life in Christ. The Spirit of Christ indwells us and His Spirit is at work in us killing off sin. You can read about that in Romans 8, 13 and following. Conforming us to the likeness of Jesus to which we are predestined. Verse 29. So, that said, your first business as a Christian 
is not service to others. It's not. Your first business is conformity to God in holiness. And it is only the truly spiritual who can minister to the whole needs of others and do so without hypocrisy. Lesson two. The production of fruit pleasing to God is a cooperative effort between the true disciple of Christ and the Holy Spirit. We're not neutral in all this. No. And we're not puppets either. All through this text, the responsibility of living for God is repeatedly set before us in Jesus' charge, remain in me. This was also evident from those scriptures we read of the apostles charging us to put off the sinful self and to put on the new man in Christ. This means that if there is little fruit in our lives, it's our fault and not God's. The problem may be complex due to stubbornness on our part or rebellion to the truth, lack of teaching, as to duty and responsibility, misinformation by others, still need to repent, if such is the case. And repentance is more than saying, oh God, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Sounds like a child pleading this case before mom and dad. Repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. Repentance means change. It means stop doing what we were doing. Start doing what's right before God. And it is soon from the word of God that we will know what the right thing to do to please God. Lesson three, the assurance of being a proven disciple of Jesus will always be in proportion to the amount of holy fruit evident in your life. Being busy in religious things is not proof. People of the world get involved in philanthropic endeavors, both within the church and within charitable organizations. But only Christ's true disciples can change into the character of Christ. The more we persevere in Christ, the more like Christ we become. And the more like Christ we become, the more confident we may be that we are his true disciples. Is this not then a great incentive to remain in Christ? Who likes going through life fretful and unsure of the reality of heaven? None of us. We all want to be assured of our position before God, before eternity comes close and closes in 
on us. We don't want to wait till we die to see if we are a true branch or not. By that time, it's too late. It's too late. So Jesus is saying to us, you need not wait. Glorify God by producing godly fruit in great abundance. Go to work on your sin. Submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Take seriously and act upon the teachings of the Word of God, and you will see sanctification's effect in your life. You will experience the kind of change which will prove to yourself as well as to others that your faith is genuine. Is your faith in Christ real? What changes in character have you seen take place? How are you different from what you were before you professed to love Christ? Are those differences inside, in thought, and heart, of substance and of real reality, are they simply superficial changes, external, and things anyone with a will to look good could perform without God in their life. God wants us to become Christ-like. You see, God is building a family for heaven. And the family for heaven is brothers and sisters of Christ, his son. That means we have to model, to be able to model, honestly, those things that Christ stood for. And that's going to put us on the path of relying upon the Holy Spirit, submitting to the Word of God, the teachings of the Word, the commands of Christ, and so forth. So what we do on a Sunday morning here, it's not wasted time. We're preparing for glory. We're asking God to work in our heart by way of His Spirit to abide by Jesus' teaching and by his life example. May the Lord give us his grace. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that your grace would be abundant, that you would shower upon us, make us more like Jesus each day. To the praise and glory of your name, we ask this. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal, the brown hymnal, 493.
privilege of we have to sit under the teaching of your word and to know that Christ has worked his salvation for his people and that we will not be deserted in our hour of crisis but will in fact be born by your angels into glory and we praise you for that. Be with each one of us. We pray, Lord, that you will give us a spiritual strength to live in this wicked world. Help us to be the witness we need to be. First, as we have said today, make sure that we are living right before the Lord and that the world can see not hypocrisy, but see genuine faith in Christ. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Take a 10-minute break and regather for the Lord's table.